Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. When Detective Smith was called backstage to investigate the Inwood murder, it looked like a rather routine affair. The case presented a few clues and a few bodies. A very dead body. A very heavenly body, a very suspicious body, and finally a very charming busybody. Taking all the trouble to protect my reputation, covering up the accident, destroying that dreadful dress. I didn't destroy it. So long as I have the dress, I'm the one who decides how long this show will run. And everything else, do you understand? You fool! There goes evidence that could have helped you! Oh, you're not to say things against Charlotte. I'm doing all this for her sake. You're just jealous of her! Let them say, if they like, it's satirical. This sounds to me remarkably like blackmail. I think I'd better call the police. Yes, do call the police, Miss Inwood. We'll talk to them together. Who are you? And those were scenes from the 1950 Alfred Hitchcock noir thriller, Stage Fright, starring Marlena Dietrich and Jane Wyman. And Wyman, whose 106th birthday anniversary takes place this week on January 5th, is to be portrayed on screen by actress Mina Suvari in an upcoming dramatic feature, Reagan, and the actress is joining us on the show to talk about her own life in films in the Sam Mendes satire American Beauty and as the Black Dahlia in American Horror Story and her current horror movie, The Accursed, and the horror of much of her life in Hollywood, sexually abused and, quote, I was not being loved, I was just a body. Everyone was raving about how I looked at 18, but I was 12, and which led to the penning of her memoir this past year, The Great Peace, contemplating suicide, and which she'll read from as well coming up. But first, the system is losing its mind. What is the weaponization of rage, and what does it have to do with billionaires, baseball bats, Spider-Man, Dr. Octopus, Viagra, nuclear war, weapons of mass destruction, and the Pentagon. To sort all this out is Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon. Good evening. My name is Garland Nixon. So, okay, the system is losing its mind. Oh, you know how I know the system's losing its mind? When I turn on all the mainstream media and the mainstream media is going nuts. No! God, no, people are talking about things and saying things, and oh my gosh, no. And I'm like, that's kind of what I want. So let me let me start by saying this. Okay, if you know anything about me being a far lefty, Garland ain't worshiping no billionaires by any stretch of the imagination. In every some people are like this. Well, our our billionaires are the good billionaires. Our billionaires are whoever it may be, Bloomberg, you know, if they're whichever, you know what, I, I'm being an independent, I call the two parties, the blue cult and the red cult. You forgive me if you're in one of them, but that's the way I see it. And the, the blue cult says, but we have our billionaires, Mike Bloomberg or whoever, right? Meanwhile, the Republicans are like, we got our billionaires, which are the Koch brothers or whoever, right? And I just think to myself, y'all suckers, you think that the billionaires are on your side. The billionaires are all on the billionaire side. Ain't none of them on your side. But they have to convince you in this, that as they have a pillow fight over stupid stuff, they got to convince you that they're fighting amongst each other so you won't realize that your pockets are empty. You won't look at where the real money's going and you'll be fighting over inconsequential things, right? And so if you notice, and this is the way I always like to discuss things, I prefer to talk about what, not who. One of the mechanisms of power, one of the methods of power, right, is this, is to distract you 
from talking about the issues that affect you, the everyday issues, inflation and, you know, where your money's going or the government money. They're not spending it on schools. They're not spending it on roads. They're spending it on war. They won't fix the infrastructure things. They can't find money to put uh, to, to fix the um uh, uh, water in Jackson, Mississippi, or the water in Flint, Michigan, but they got money to build a new base in the F- Philippines. They don't care how much that costs, right? And but but it's easy to distract you. And then, as the United States, the largest uh, uh, military in the world, the biggest military budget in the world by far, eight hundred and fifty bases worldwide, surrounding all of these other countries with bases, and they have to somehow convince you. The countries that we're surrounded with bases are a threat to us. That ain't easy. It ain't easy, right? It ain't easy. Think about it. Me and five guys, and there's a woman, and she's five foot, and she weighs 102 pounds soaking wet. Me and eight guys surround her, and we got baseball bats. And we want to convince you that she's a threat to us. That ain't easy. You got to have some good lies to do that. And you got to have suckers, too. So when North Korea talk to Americans, why North Korea is a threat? North Korea is the size of Pennsylvania. It's got like four nukes. Literally, it's got like 30, 40 million people. We got 330. We got like 300 million more people than North Korea. You could fit North Korea in like a lot of states that we have. Right. It has the budget of, I don't know, Washington, D.C. You know what I mean? It's a tiny nothing to the United States. But they got to create they've got to convince you that North Korea is a threat. Otherwise, you're going to say, why are we spending all this money on military? One of the ways that that's done, and I call it the weaponization of rage. Right. Here's what they have to do. And that's why. When our people in charge talk about things, they talk about people not countries, people, not things. They have to get you angry. They have to force you to hate something. They have to convince you to hate something. And once they can get you to hate it, to dislike it, to fear it, then they can get you to do anything. Because it's like, I'll put it like this. What did Muhammad Ali used to do? He would go in the pre-fight and he would call the person that he was fighting names. And he'd say, I'm pretty and you look like ugly. You look like a gorilla, whatever. He would talk about them. He would put them down. He would make them angry. Why? Because when people get emotional, they don't think clearly. When people get emotional, they get stupid. He, Muhammad Ali wanted every advantage he could get. And one of the advantages that he got was what? He was going to be, you were going to be angry and he wasn't. So you're swinging away trying to get him and he's thinking and he's cold and he's calculating and he's using every tool he has to beat the living daylights out of you because you're angry and you just swing yourself out to your mad out of anger. You don't use all the knowledge that you had about boxing and you lose to him. Same game that the powerful people do. So let me give you a perfect example of this. Any country that the United States ever wants to invade, which is usually steal all their resources. Those things go together. They got oil or something. We want to steal it. They got something. We want to steal it. In the cases of Syria, they were on the border of Israel. Israel wanted Syria to be overthrown and destabilized, right? What does the United States do every time? They name the leader of the country, Assad. And then they demonize that leader. Oh, he's terrible. He's evil. He's using weapons of mass destruction on his own people. He's using he's kill. He's a killer. He's unthinkable. He's vicious. You must be afraid of him. And after a while, after the Americans hear 24 hours a day, seven days a week, how evil Assad is and how they have to be afraid of him. Piece of cake. You're afraid of him. You think he's mad. Then they can say, yeah, he's really Horrible, isn't he? And Americans go, yeah, I know, because I saw it on MSNBC and Fox and CNN 10 times. I read stories on the Washington Post and New York Times, and all of them said the same thing. Assad is evil. He's frightening and horrible, and he's going to kill us all. Now that they got you there, the next step is, therefore, I guess we better overthrow the government. And people say, of course, you got to overthrow the government, as evil as he is. Thanks, guys. We're on the way. Then next what? Well, you know, Venezuela. Maduro, he's an evil dictator. Well, how about uh, Libya? Gaddafi. Remember what they told us about Gaddafi? Gaddafi, he's giving, literally, Susan Rice said, Muammar Gaddafi is giving his troops Viagra so they can rape the women. It was a lie. But they didn't say it because it was true. They said it because if they told you the truth, you would say, well, I don't think that's right. We shouldn't overthrow the richest African country, the most stable, wealthiest country in Africa. It was Libya. 
it was a socialist country. They didn't like that. That's one thing they really didn't like about it. The real reason they invaded it, if you look into it, was this. Muammar Gaddafi said the African people are being robbed, and here's what we need to do. We need to come up with our own currency. It's going to be called the dinar, and it's going to be backed by gold. And when he said that, uh-oh, the Africans are going to have their own currency backed by gold, and Africa has all those resources. That ain't going to happen. And they overthrew him. Saddam Hussein, you remember what happened to Saddam Hussein? Saddam Hussein said, you know, I think I'm going to start taking other currencies other than the dollar for oil. Oh, he has to be overthrown. But to you, they have to feed you anger and rage. Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. He poisoned his own people. He did this. He did. Oh, he's evil. He's scary. He's scary and evil. And once they get you to the point where you believe a person is scary and evil because all day and night, they tell you that on every channel, whoever it is, they put it in every newspaper and you believe, oh, my God, that person is scary, scary and evil. Therefore, we must overthrow his country. And you're, go, and you're like, well, of course, he's scary and evil. Every country, that's the game. Vladimir Putin in Russia, there's no such country as Russia. Listen to the mainstream meeting. They never say Russia. They say Putin. Why? Because they got to demonize Vladimir Putin. Because if you're afraid of him and you think he's evil, you won't say, why are you spending all my money on war? You will cheerlead them. I call it the weaponization of rage. Now, China is evil, blah, 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 China's doing this, China's doing that. They're trying to do everything bad. They must demonize. And they're going to work on, uh, believe it, believe me, the president of China, Xi Jinping. Oh, it's coming. Right now, they're just busy with Putin and Russia. You know, they got to demonize Putin and Russia so that you'll be very happy. Another $37 billion going to the Ukraine mess. You'll be happy with that. So they got the, you know, they're trying to eat off Ukraine right now. So they got to feed you that crap. Next comes China. You know what the game is. Don't pretend like you don't. You know the game. Hey, what do you think about uh, China? Well, you know, their president, uh, uh, Xi Jinping, is eating people alive. Children, I believe it is. Yes, he's frying. He's fricasseeing children every single day. Oh, he's a horrible. Hey, weapons of mass destruction. He's doing a genocide in Xinjiang with weapons of mass destruction and eating the children after they die in the genocide, what's left of their skinny little bones. They'll do that for six months eight months, and then they're like, well, therefore, we've got to go to war with China. Well, that one ends in a nuclear war, and we all die. But they don't, that, that's the game plan. That's how they draw you into total stupidity until you're frightened of the leader of whatever country it is, and you know what happens? They're so good at it that with me, I've never bought it. Country after country, I always say, you're being lied to, you're being had. And every time, you know what I get from like friends and sometimes family members? I don't know, Garland. And I'll run it down and say, but what about the last war? What about the last country? What about the one before that? What about the country? And I'll go over one after the other, after the other, after the other. What about the Korean War and blah, blah, blah? What about remember the Maine with the Spanish-American War, the Gulf of Talk? I'll go after every, I can go to every single war and show you how they lied us. The whole thing was a lie. And my, unfortunately, there are some of my friends that will go, well, yeah, you're right about every single one so far. But this time, I think they're telling you the truth. And I'll say, yep. And next time, and last time you thought they was telling you the truth, and when you find out they're lying now, guess what you're going to do? The next time they come up and say, well, it's China this time. Oh, I should have known. Any country, they could make up the name of a country. I'll use the name I always use, Smabibia. They could say, well, there's a country called Smabibia. And you could say, well, I've never heard of Smabibia. And they could say, look. It's run by an evil dictator, and his name is Garland Nixon. Really? What is he doing? He's using weapons of mass destruction on his own people. No! Yes! Here, look at CNN. We've got pictures of it, and they'll show you pictures of, like, some people that died 20 years ago in some massacre wherever, and you'll think it's real. Oh, my gosh, Garland Nixon in Smabibia. They, they don't even have to be a place called Smabibia. All they got to do is go on CNN MSNBC, Fox, OANN, Washington Post, New York Times, all they got to do is 24 hours a day tell you there's a place called Smabibia and tell you, hey, it's run by a guy named Garland Nixon who was evil dictator. And within a couple months, you'll be ready to invade Smabibia. Won't know where it is. The same, look, right now, give somebody a blank map and tell them to find Ukraine and Taiwan. They can't do it. They can't do it. But they feed you lies day and night, and they don't talk about the country.
They talk about the person. They create an evil figure. They create a, a, a Lex Luthor, right? A Doc Ock, you know, Dr. Octopus on, um, on uh, Spider-Man. They create a worldwide, world-renowned crime, evil crime figure, an evil genius, right? And when they create that, they feed it to you to the point that you're afraid of this evil genius. And then, you know, you're, you, you, and then the next thing you know, Garland's reading you this. The Senate on Thursday night passed the massive $858 billion natural defense authorization in a vote of 83 to 11. The spending bill has already been approved by the House and now heads to President Biden's desk. The $858 billion bill is $45 billion more than Biden asked for and represents an 8% increase from the 2022 NDWA. It, makes the, it marks the second year in a row that Congress added tens of billions of dollars to the president's original request. Out of the $858 billion, $817 billion goes to the Pentagon. The remaining funds will go toward military spending for other departments, including $30 billion for the Energy Department's nuclear weapons program. Because let me tell you something. Humankind is not just going to uh, uh, wipe itself off into the dustbin of history. We got to spend $30 billion because, man, people might survive. Humanity might survive. We can't have that. Our government's going to make sure another $30 billion for nuclear. Now, if you want some money for food, maybe something to help the poor, roads, clean your what that's not happening. That's not happening. But as long as you turn on the TV and you go, yeah, that Bashar Assad in Syria is certainly an evil dude. Uh, Maduro, he's certainly evil in Venezuela. Uh, the hit people in charge of Iran, oh, God, how evil they are. What about Putin? He's evil. What about the president? As long as you're doing that, you ain't going to say a word. You're going to eat that $858 billion. Oh, well, they had to spend eight hundred fifty. Look at all of those dictators we're standing up against. It's the weaponization of rage. And next on Arts Express. Oh my God, it says Psycho next door. Jane, what if he worships you? I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not obsessing, I'm just curious. Why does he dress like a Bible salesman? Today I quit my job, and then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these barriers. Your dad's actually kind of cute. I think he and your mother have not slept together in a long time. Shut up. You think you're the only one who's frustrated. I'm not? Well then, come on, baby, I'm ready. Smile, you're at Mr. Smiley's. You are so busted. I love shooting this gun. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world. I feel like I can't take it. Tried to leave tonight, would you come with me? Yes. And those were scenes from American Beauty, the Sam Mendes satire in which then-teenager Mina Suvari was the designated sex object. Suvari joins us on this show to revisit her life in film and her current work in the horror movie The Accursed and what also might be considered horror, the biopic Reagan, in which she portrays the late screen goddess Jane Wyman and Ronald Reagan's disaffected first wife, whose divorce from him she initially attributed to political differences. Here's Mina Suvari. Well, hello, Mina Suvari, and welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. All right. Regarding portraying real people on screen, like the Black Dahlia, what can you say about playing screen legend Jane Wyman next and those challenges in the upcoming film Reagan? Oh, wow. Um <laughs> That I, I feel very undeserving. <laughs> very undeserving. I mean, I don't know. I don't have the the perfect words on how to fill someone's shoes like that, you know, of that caliber. I mean, that was such an honor. That was so exciting for me. Um, not only to, you know, for others to consider that I could uphold something like that, but it was also 
again, as an actor, a lot of fun for me because I got to really play and really transform. Yeah. I can't wait to share some of the videos. I did little videos of me just like showing up and, you know, whatever, shirt and sweats, mm. and then going into the hair and makeup trailer. And then, and then the after where I came out in full hair and makeup. And it was incredible. I mean, one of our one of our um, hairstylists uh, only worked with wigs in the opera. She was in, uh, incredible, this woman. I mean, the, the, how fast they would do these changeovers and how beautiful these, these hairstyles were and the makeup and the clothes. Mm, yeah. Another thing with Elizabeth Shore on American Horror Stories, people don't know, is my entire wardrobe was made for me. I mean, down to the stockings and the lingerie and all of that, you know? So... Mm. As an actor, it's a lot of fun to really, you know, I got to go into to that time period. They've still been um, here and there in post. I don't know exactly. I know we're all waiting. It's, that's, it's been a journey working on Reagan during COVID. No, everybody did it. What was it about the accursed that attracted you to this story and your scary character, Alma? calling on behalf of Ms. Ambrose. She needs a carer. Your mother recommended you. My mother? This is really in the middle of nowhere. I'll be fine. Creepy. Was she always standing right there? I'm Alma Whitemore, in charge of the Ambrose estate. Ms. Ambrose is a private woman. Does she have any family? I'll introduce you to your patient now. Ms. Ambrose, can you hear me? Alma, good old Alma. <laughs> um, I feel like everything. I mean, I've always loved this genre my whole life. I love horror. Um, and I just, I love, I love the storyline. I love the female-led drama really about um you know the, the 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 choices that we make in life and how they can come back to literally haunt us mm. um and i was obviously a huge fan of kevin lewis our director and i was really excited about the trajectory of alma and the <laughs> really <laughs> intense situations that she gets herself into um I thought that for me, just being such a fan of this uh, genre, that it would be a lot of fun, uh, ironically enough. So it, it was for me playing at the cinema school of makeup here and doing head casts and getting to see them work on all the, um, the prosthetic pieces for, uh, for the demon. And so it was great, all of it. Just a, a, fun, a fun project to be a part of. Now, you've been inspired to be part of such a wide range of characters. So what is it about horror movies like The Accursed and American Horror Story that gets you interested? And how is it a different experience from, say, portraying Jane Wyman? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess it's, I mean, it's just so, um, you know, they're all different. I also play a lot of, like, based on real-life people, or <laughs> which always seems so intense, but... Um, I don't know. I've always loved the supernatural element. I've never been a big fan of like the too much gore horror. Um, and so this kind of supernatural, uh, you know, mystical witchy element to it, I thought would be really interesting and really different. And I've never played a character like Alma who was so severe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, for me, the way that I personally live my life is I just, I try to remain very open. Um, and it's always, um, it's always enjoyable for me too to experience, uh, how others see me. And so, you know, when they presented this character to me, okay. part of me thought, you know, what is that all about? You know, what do you, what do you see in me that uh, coincides with Alma? But, um, but I, I accept the challenge and, and the part of that is the fun for me. It's why I do what I do to really get into 
a character and, and lose myself like that. I mean, that's, again, truly why I love what I do. Um, I, I love to just, I love the collaborative effort. You know, I've, I've talked a lot about how, for me, a character comes together and and in reference to a curse, you know, we, we shot Savannah. I mean, number one, that's like already a, a, a character in and of itself and just feeling the environment and, and then, you know, getting to meet our costumer, our hair and makeup and, and hearing from them and seeing from them their thoughts and ideas on the character. Like, that's also fun. So when I got there really to experience and see how they had Alma kind of tightened up in this little, like, you know suspenders and her stripes and her uh-uh. tight little bun, you know, all of yeah. that on who she needs to be. Now, as the daughter of a psychiatrist, did his insights into human beings and the darker side of human behavior add to your portrayal of unhinged characters like Alma in The Accursed? I think that that is, I don't know. I never got to ask him that question, but I think that that's like a, a, a perfect assumption because, um, I know for me, just when I was younger in school, I I chose medical research on career day. And in the sixth grade, I was always um, fascinated by psychology and, um, you know, tried to take as many classes when I was going to UCLA for my extension classes on like child psychology and attachment disorders. And for sure, I mean, um, I, I definitely have that mind. And I believe, yeah, I, I get that from my father. And what about the challenges for you of portraying actual people in real life horror? Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia in American Horror Story, and Nicole Simpson in the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, especially that one. That's very, very intense and very daunting and very heartbreaking because it was never solved. I don't know why I'm <laughs> thought of for some of these roles or to take on these characters or to tell these stories. That's something that um, sort of mystifies me, but it's a lot. It's, it's, um, it's very challenging. And uh, I mean, because I think I, I care so much, you know, it's very different. Um, and it depends on what it is. I mean, how much I'm able to do with it. Um, but I always want to bring as much truth and justice to the character I mean, I, I, you know, I, I played Treya Wilbur and Grace and Grit, and, you know, this young woman who passed away from her battle of cancer. And it's just, I always just try to, again, bring as much honesty to it. Um, and, I mean, working with everyone as much as I can around me to um, get as much information as I can. I mean, I, I, I see it as, it's a different form of responsibility, you know? It's not like I could just, like with the occurs, kind of come up with, you know, whatever I wanted to come up with, you know? Sometimes it's, it's, you're following more of a guideline and there's a lot of, for me, there's pressure around it. Yeah. Now getting back to the accursed, it's pretty much a female-driven story, except among those few males, like the mystery demon played by Troy James. So what was it like being part of this primarily female story? And would you say that's unique in any way from conventional horror where actresses are primarily the designated victims? Yeah, no, definitely. It felt really wonderful. Again, I mean, I'm always honored to be thought of. I mean, one of the things that I love so much is just the, the realism quality to it. When I watched this film, not only just some of the moments of tone and pacing that felt unique, but the relationships and the conversations. That's what I really appreciated because they felt very real. And what are your thoughts looking back on your breakout role when you were just a teenager in American Beauty? Oh, just my overall thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful to, to be doing what I do. Um, yeah, first and foremost, I get to really learn about myself through my work, through my experience um, playing these characters and working with others. And that's awesome, you know? I feel really, really grateful that, I, that I'm accepted in that way. I struggled for a long time in my career feeling a part of the project. I always felt very separate. Um, 
I never considered myself good enough in any way to be a part of it. Ironically enough, even though I was and I was performing, I never really took the time to enjoy it. And so I'm doing that now, like finally. And, and I'm just living in the gratitude, you know, that feels, feels really, really good because there's so much that's out of our control. I just, uh, I take it moment by moment. And I'm also really, really grateful for now I'm kind of, you know, I'm playing like moms now or playing like the older character to the younger generation. And I'm loving the, the new tone that it feels like on set. And I love, like, especially when I think of, um, I call them my Sarahs, <laughs> Beth and Ellie, because they're both named Sarah, but just with these other women, just experiencing how they hold themselves and yeah. how they work with one another. Um, it, it's, uh, it feels very wonderful and promising, you know, and truly fun and not about um, any kind of, uh, competition or anything like that. Mm. So it's, it's, it makes me feel very hopeful, you know? Okay. Thank you, Mina Suvari for calling into the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. And now Mina Suvari reads from her recently published memoir, Far Less Upbeat, looking back on a not so optimistic journey through an exploitative Hollywood the great peace. Following the end of a relationship, I left the house where I had lived and put everything into there. It was typical of me, just bid adieu to a bad situation or two or three. My version of therapy was a garage, a padlock, and driving like a bat out of hell in the opposite direction. God, I can't even remember all that's in there, I told Mike on the phone, though that wasn't true. I knew where the storage unit was located and what was inside. This was confirmed as soon as the metal door creaked open and light poured into the dark space. Furniture, boxes. My life was staring at me, waiting to greet me again. Hello, Mina. We've been waiting for you. I moved things around, marveling at how much I had amassed. I felt good about selling this stuff. It was the smart move. Pushing things around opened up a path toward the back, and I came upon a plastic bin. I remembered this one. Inside was my diary, my poetry binder titled The Great Peace, and my art book filled with drawings and collages. I had poured my heart into these books until I... I couldn't remember why I had stopped, or where in my life I had stopped. Later, I brought the bin back to my home office, and as I pulled out the books, I thought about how strange it was that many of my old memories remained as vivid as my most recent television binge, but then suddenly had huge blank spots, the screen just going black. I took a seat and opened my diary. So many of the entries instantly took me back to the moment they were written. I wrote about people letting me down and wanting to escape into nature. I wiped a tear from my eye. Then, after dozens of entries, the pages went blank. It was full stop. Until I found a letter that was glued onto the inside of the back cover. I unfolded the pale yellow construction paper card and saw a note written in a beautiful cursive, signed at the end with an Estonian quote, and adorned with an angel sticker, as if to welcome the reader who found it. How ironic and amazing that that reader happened to be me. I read two lines before I stopped and gasped. I was reading my suicide note. That day came rushing back to me. I wrote the letter after things had gotten bad. My family had come to an end, and I couldn't take any more abuse from the outside. Frail, weak, and lost, I was tired of holding on. I had no idea how I made it through that despair only to enter the gates of a new hell. But as I thought back to what was happening then and why I hadn't taken my life, I remembered the way I would find the tiniest glimmer of hope that my life could get even slightly better and believe it. I clung to that belief with all my might. That's how it was. Deep down in the marrow of my bones, where no one could get no matter how they ripped into my flesh, 
I held on to my dreams and the hope I had for myself. I looked for the beauty that was around me, compelled to see it no matter how hard it was to find. I knew there was a glimmer of light that I could follow through the darkness. I never got the apologies I wanted from the people who hurt me, but I came to understand they were unnecessary for my well-being. I needed only one person's forgiveness. This is her story. The thoughts of the silent in heart, turning while wandering, then tearing apart, apart from the norm that used to be, something that is routine to you and me. Call to the skies that lie in the heavens above. Raise your arms and offer your love. Acceptance will then come to thee, something that is routine to you and me. Gaze upon the mirror of sea. Submerge your thoughts for eternity. The moonlight subjects to set one free, something that is routine to you and me. The gentle sways that move your soul around and spinning till death takes its toll. The shadow that appears, not hard to see, is something that is routine to you and me. And The Great Peace is published by Hatchet Books. And now on Arts Express. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. If your girl is a Washington Heights dream, treat the kid to a Midsummer's Night's Dream. If she then wants it all by herself, night, let her rest every 11th and 12th night. If because of your heat she gets huffy, simply play on and lay on McDuffie. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Don't touch that dial. That was Brush Up Your Shakespeare, a song that signals our series. Shakespeare Without Tears, Shakespeare for the 21st Century. If you love Shakespeare, hate Shakespeare, or just curious about him, this is the place to be. Well, this week marks the 6th of January, and some may think of January 6th as Insurrection Day, but much of the world celebrates it as Epiphany or El Dia de los Reyes, or in England it's known as the 12th Night of Christmas, partridges in pear trees and all that. Yes, it's traditionally a day of festivities, and to celebrate that day, Shakespeare wrote what I think is his best comedy, Twelfth Night. Now, if we were going to title this play for a modern audience, we might call it Love Makes Idiots and Fools of Everyone, <laughs> or maybe just Fool for Love, like Sam Shepard called one of his plays, for there is no one in this play that escapes the insanity and madness engendered by love. In a sense, this comedy is also a treatise on the very nature of comedy. And while this play has an air of breezy farce, Shakespeare always makes things more complicated and interesting. So let's just review the plot for a minute. The curtain opens on the court of Count Orsino, fool for love number one, because we find him already in a lovesick swoon. He's in love with love. He's in a faint with the music his courtiers are playing. He compares the music to love itself. He asks his courtiers to keep playing the music, stuff him with music, until he is sick of it and rid of it. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that surfeiting, the appetite might sicken and die. Now, unfortunately, the object of Count Orsino's affections, the Countess Olivia, refuses to return his approaches. She's been in mourning for seven years for the death of her beloved brother and spends at least once a day in a black shroud weeping tears in her cloistered garden. Fool for Love, number two. Now, the plot is set in motion by a shipwreck. A brother and sister on board ship are separated. The girl, Viola, escapes and believes her twin brother drowned. Viola, now stranded, a stranger in a strange land, decides 
she'll do better if she disguises herself as a man to seek employment. Well, what else? So she does disguise herself as a eunuch, no less. And odds botkins, she finds a job in Count Orsino's court. Complications, as they say, ensue. The Count Orsino sends Viola, remember, dressed as a man, to woo the Countess Olivia for him. Viola does the best she can for her master, because Viola herself, fool number three, has actually fallen in love with the Count Orsino, but she can't reveal her true identity as a woman. But speaking in her master Orsino's name, she goes to Olivia's house to win her for Orsino. So Viola, on her knees, says, Why, if she were Orsino, she would halloa your name to the reverberate hills and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out, Olivia! Oh, you should not rest between the elements of air and earth, but you should pity me. Well, <laughs> you're probably a step ahead of me by now. Yep, Olivia falls in love with Viola, who she thinks is a man. And Viola is in love with Orsino, but Viola can't tell Orsino that she's a woman. <laughs> if only they were in a society where same-sex couples could fall in love and marry openly. Shakespeare's audiences were living in a society that was pretty rigid when it came to gender roles and sexuality, at least publicly. Of course, the hilarious part in all this, as Shakespeare well knew, was that his theater company, as all theater companies in England were at the time, was comprised exclusively of males, with either men or young boys playing the women's roles. So when Shakespeare's audiences watched the story of Viola, they knew they were watching a man playing a woman playing a man. So a play about the mix-up of so-called normative gender roles was mocking itself with its very performance. But there are more characters in the play who are also fools for love. Shakespeare saves his deepest satirical daggers for the disagreeable household steward of the Countess, named Malvolio. Well, Malvolio is a snobby, arrogant stiff. Fool number four. He refuses to have any fun and wants to stop others from having fun as well. He's a Puritan with a capital P. Now, you may think of Puritans as the folks who landed on Plymouth Rock and they were. But when it came to England at the time, they were kind of the equivalent of the modern-day Taliban. They were fundamentalists who believed in no drinking, no dancing, only dark-colored clothing, basically no fun allowed. And Shakespeare, as you might guess, disliked them intensely. But for a very particular reason, the Puritans, you see, not only hated dancing and singing, but hated the theater as well. In fact, when the Puritan factions came into power not long after Shakespeare's death, one of the first things they did was shut down all the theaters in England for 20 years. So for Shakespeare, the Puritans' purity was personal. And, of course, Shakespeare's audience was on his side here. They must have roared with laughter, as audiences still do, when Olivia's carousing uncle, the always drunk Sir Toby Belch, fool number five, yells at the admonishing Puritan Malvolio, Dost thou think, because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? Well, what better plot twist than to have the Puritan Malvolio also fall in love and make a fool of himself, too. Sir Toby and his friends plant a fake letter, making Malvolio believe that the Countess is in love with him. And she wants him, supposedly, to discard his austere clothing and wear yellow stockings cross-gartered with big ribbons. And so Malvolio, one more lovesick fool, insane with love, prances around in his ridiculous new costume, 
thinking himself a proud stud. Well, it's always fun to see a prig get their comeuppance and none gets more satisfaction from the conspiratorial prank against Malvolio than Olivia's jester, Festy the Fool. Now, we could do a whole show about the clowns and fools in Shakespeare, but I want to focus on Festy for a bit because Twelfth Night marks the beginning of a huge change on exactly what the concept of a comedian is. It's kind of a watershed moment in the history of onstage comedy. In the past, when you had fools or comedians on this stage, they were usually characters who were stupid. Country bumpkins or local yokels who mangled the language or clowns who did physical slapstick dancing, singing. There were clowns in all the London theater companies, and Shakespeare's company was no exception. Now, for a long time previously, the comedy elements of Shakespeare's plays were handled by a clown named Will Kemp, who was famous for dancing a jig from the city of London to the city of Norwich, a distance of some 110 miles. But... A funny thing happened on the way to the theater. Kemp either quit Shakespeare's company or was fired. And believe it or not, we have a clue of what might have happened in Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Because when Hamlet meets a troupe of traveling actors, he warns them. Let those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them. For there be of them that will themselves laugh to set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too, though in the meantime some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. Well, you can almost hear Shakespeare himself chewing out Will Kemp, saying, Cut out the ad-libs, guy, and the additional clowning. You're ruining my play. So what happens not long after that Hamlet speech was written, is that Kemp leaves the company. Instead, they get a new actor in charge of the comedy roles, a comedian named Robert Armin, whose disposition is 180 degrees different from Kemp. Where Kemp is himself foolish, Armin A satirist sees the foolishness in the people around him, including his employers, and satirizes that. That change in personnel in the company was as if the Three Stooges had been replaced by George Carlin. And for the rest of Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare writes for this more cerebral intellectual fool. Which, when you think about it, is a remarkable thing. After all, how many people, even now, can make fun of their bosses straight to their faces? And believe me, In Elizabethan England, if you valued your head, you didn't openly make fun of the royalty. But in this play, Festy the Fool makes fun of his employers and aides all the time. Even the Countess Olivia is not immune from his barbs. He calls her a fool for mourning over a dead brother in heaven and tells her, I wear not motley in my brain. In other words, my brain is not a fool's brain like yours. Of course, Malvolio, ever the stick in the mud, refuses to laugh at Festy's jokes and says, I marvel that your ladyship laughs at such a barren rascal. But Olivia sticks up for her jester. Oh, you are sick of self-love, Malvolio, and taste with a distempered appetite. There is no slander in an allowed fool. And that's the crux of the comedic matter. Festy is an allowed fool, also called later an all-licensed fool, one protected by the government. In other words, that's his job. He's a professional, like a stand-up comedian today. He's allowed to say, like many of today's comedians, that which is not allowed to be said by the rest of society. He's out there on his own like all the stand-ups who have to make their audiences laugh with nothing but their wit. And like many stand-up comedians of today, off mic, he is not a particularly happy man. When Festy sings songs, they're not happy jigs, but often tales of lost love. 
among all those fools for love, Feste is the fool with no love. Well, as the play ends, the major characters, having dropped their disguises, at last can find true love. The play seems to say that you can't find true love if you're in disguise and hide your desires. You have to be free and open about it. So the characters finally get paired up with their true loves. After all, this is a comedy. And they go off to celebrate, but Shakespeare can't resist complicating things. As the foolish couples happily leave the stage, Festy, the professional fool, is on stage alone. And the play ends as he turns to the audience and sings a final song about lost love. But when I came, alas, to wive, with hey-ho, the wind and the rain, by swaggering, could I never thrive? For the rain, it raineth every day. A great while ago, the world began with a hey-ho, the wind and the rain. But that's all one, our play is done. And we'll strive to please you every day. Striving to please you every day. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller wishing you a happy 12th night. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.